Uh, first of all, I'd just like to thank Shul for giving me the opportunity to share some thoughts of the Torah, particularly on the answer of my father, Adam Shalom. Uh, and the Shia should be an aliyah for his neshama. Uh, thank you for coming and also for those who are joining us remotely, very sensibly. The question of uh, risk-taking uh, in medicine is actually a very broad one. In fact, almost everything you do in medicine is a balance of risks. Every time somebody has an operation, you're weighing up the risk of the operation with the potential benefits. In fact, every time somebody takes an antibiotic, you're also weighing up the benefits for treatment of what may or may not be a bacterial infection against potential side effects from the antibiotics. So the question of where and how to balance risk uh, has got many guises. I want to focus really particularly on two which relate specifically to the situation which we've found ourselves in over the last nine or ten months in relation to COVID. Um, I'd like to discuss primarily um, how much risk is a medical person, a doctor or a Hatsola member or a carer or a family member who's caring for a person who's unwell, how much risk are you supposed to or allowed to take in order to save or help uh, other ill people? Um, and then relate that, the principles are the same, to a brief discussion about the pros and cons of the COVID vaccine. We've discussed the question of risk, how much risk is a person supposed to, to what extent is a person supposed to or allowed to risk his life to save other people in the past. We've spoken about kidney donors um, and subjects like that. Um, and, but here I particularly want to relate it to the question of, of the direct risk a person might take from coming into contact with a, with a sick person. The basic principles are well set out, and that is um, the, the uh, Shulchan Aruch brings uh, very definitely that uh, if you see somebody drowning in the sea, or or and he's able to, to save him either by doing it or by getting somebody else, hiring somebody else to do that, he's to do that. Um, and if he doesn't, then he's over Allah Sama Dazamreyach, the last, very last simon in Shukhanorach in Chodshim Mishvot Tafkavlog. The Beis Yosef, however, has got an extra line. For Kosovar Gaz Maimonis, on that, over Allah Sama Dazamreyach, Birishami Masik, Afidu Lahaknis Asma Besofik Sakona. Even if in order to save this person, you're going to have to put yourself into a Sofik Sakona, you're Mokhoyev to do that. The person who's drowning is definitely going to die unless you do something, almost certainly. Whereas for him, it's a sophic whether he'll be able to save him. He might be able to save him or he might drown. Because it's so important to try and uh, be mekayim every nefesh in Yisrael. So therefore, uh, even at risk of your own life, you're supposed to do that. However, the problem is that that halacha which the Beis Yosef brings from Magas Maimonis is not brought in the Rambam, it's not brought in the Rif, it's not brought in the Tur, and the Beis Yosef himself doesn't bring it in the Shulchan Aruch, which leads the Poskin to say that we don't pass on that, that Yerushalmi. The Beis Yosef brings that Yerushalmi, but he doesn't bring it in his own Chib in Shulchan Aruch itself because we don't pass on like that, um, that Yerushalmi. And in fact, the Medayik, the Rambam, the Loshim, which the Shulchan Aruch brings is, 
that implies a degree of confidence that he's able to save him, which suggests that if he thinks he may not be able to save him, that he shouldn't do it. And the reason why we don't pass on that Yerushalmi, they say, is because the Bavli is Mukhulik with that Yerushalmi. What's the source in the Bavli which is Mukhulik with Yerushalmi? That's a bit uncertain. The Aguda says that it's the Gemara in Sanhedrin where the Gemara says, discusses what's the Makur that a person uh, has to try and save somebody's life and it brings the Possum, which Gemara brings the Rosam Adam Reecha. And then it says, why don't we learn that from the Hashavetala? If you're Mukhulik to, to, um, return somebody's lost property, so surely you're, you're required to cover Khomi, you're required to return his health to him if you're able to save his life. So, and the Gemara got terrors why, why you need both. But surely the obvious terrors would be that in order to save lost property, you wouldn't risk your life. Whereas in order to, to save somebody else's life, if you're even Mukhuyiv to save your life, then that would be an obvious limit from Lesamadadamrecha. Therefore, the Gemara, therefore, they possibly want to say that's a proof that our Gemara doesn't agree with that, and that you're not mechuyev to go as far as saving, save, as risking your life in order to save somebody else's life. There's an interesting Meshachachman in, in Pasha Shmois, where he's been dying. The Pasha says to Moshe Rabbeinu, "Lech shuv mitzrayim v'kemesi kol anoshim hamavakshem esnafshecha." Says Meshachachman, it seems he Moshe Rabbeinu only could be asked to go back to Mitzrayim when all the people who wanted to kill him had died. But here he's going to be Matzi Yisrael. He's going to save the whole of Klal Yisrael. Surely he should be Mechuyiv to go even if there was a risk to his life for the people of Mavakshim Esnafshecha. So he says that's a, another Makur, even from the Torah itself, to say a person is not Mechuyiv. Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't Mechuyiv to put himself at risk to save the others. I mean, you could argue that if they would have killed him, he wouldn't be able to save Klal Yisrael either, and therefore there'd be no choice. But that, that's how the Meshachot was that. So La Halacha, the basic tshuva, which all the poskim base their discussions on, is a tshuva saradvaz. The tshuva saradvaz was a case where um, a bot said to somebody, either I'm going to kill so-and-so, or I'm going to cut off your ear. If you let me cut off your ear, then I won't kill the other person. If you don't let me cut off your ear, I'm going to kill the other person. Are you mechuyiv, is he mechuyiv to allow him to cut off his ear in order to save the other person? And the maskon of the radvaz, the maskon of the radvaz is that he's not mechuyiv to cut off, to let him cut off his ear in order to save the other person. And he says, number one, because cutting off the ear itself could be dangerous. He's seen people who've bled to, uh, to death after having their ear cut off, so there's a, a degree of sakon in it. And number two, it's not conceivable that the Torah should expect somebody to go around without an ear, even if it's a question of, of somebody's life being saved. And, he, and, and the conclusion of the, of the tshuva in Tofresh Chav is that um, he says... Um, I can't see that there's any chiyuv, a person could have a chiyuv to have his ear cut off, but it could be a, a midas chasidus. Somebody's able to do that, it's an, it's an amazing thing to do, but you couldn't be mechayiv somebody to do that. But, if it's a risk to his life, then that's not even a middle chasidus, that's called chosid shaita. Your own sophic is more important than the vadai risk. A sophic risk to yourself is, you can consider as more significant than a vadai risk to somebody else. And the obvious difficulty with this shiva is that he just said at the beginning that cutting off the air is a sophic sakana, that there is some sakana involved. 
Then he says it's a middle of and then he says if there's a sophist corner, he's a chosen. And so the obvious shot here is that you have to weigh up the degree of sakana. The sakana of bleeding when they cut off the ears is obviously a very small sakana. Um, and on that, you would say that uh, it's a midas chasidus. You can't be machai of a person to do it because of that small sakana, but there would be a midas chasidus to do it. But if there's a significant sakana, when he talks about sofet sakana at the end of the tshuva, um, which he says is a chosid shaita, that means when there's a significant degree of sakana, then that would be called a chosid shaita. And, and really all the possible accept this, uh, that um, explanation of the tshuva and, and use that as a basis. The problem is, of course, is What's the degree of sophic that we're talking about? How do you define what, uh, what's called a little bit of a sophic, what's called too much of a sophic, and how do you weigh that up? And the, the um, poskim are quick to jump in and say, you can't be too machmir, whichever direction, in this, in this thing. The Piskei brings... Um, you have to weigh it up carefully whether this is something which you consider to be a sophic sakana not to be too mucked about it um, that concept that your your life is more significant than somebody else's somebody's too that, that he won't take even the slightest risk when he's got a chance of seeing somebody else's life uh, then, then he could be and the Orach HaShulchan brings a similar thing you have to keep in mind the Indian of HaTzalim from the Hoshas is very important and you can't withdraw from it because of some potential uh, theoretical suffix but it does seem that there are these levels there's a certain level of Sakana which a person is not supposed to, even perhaps allowed to himself, or if he does, he's a chosid shaita. There's a certain level of sakana, which is a midas chasidus, a person should put himself to. And then there's a, a certain level which a person would actually be mechuyiv to do, because the risk is, is so minimal. But how you actually define the different levels, there's really no askam among the poskim, there's no real makuras for it, uh, and, and um and the different poskim have, uh, it's quoted, and names of different poskim, exactly how they, how they define it. There's a Shevet Halevi who brings Knesset and he really wanted it's a 50-50. The cut-off point is at a 50-50 Suffolk. Obviously, you can never know exactly what it is, but 50-50 means it's approximately, you feel there's approximately equal chance of you surviving this or not, that if it's more than 50-50, a person's not allowed to do it. That's when the, that, that would be us anyway. When the Ravaz says that there's a Midas Chasidus to do it, that would be, if it's less than a 50-50 chance, then it would be a Midas Chasidus to perhaps go ahead and, and take that, to take that risk. Um, and when there's very minimal risk, that would be a Chiv, that would be something that you're allowed to do under any, under any circumstances. The, um, Imre Eish, uh, based on Agmar and Shvur's where it talks about going out to Mohammed, where there was a one in six, where I said up to a one in six risk the uh, army the king can put the people at risk of up to a one in six chance and therefore he says a person's allowed to take a risk of up to one in six um, in order to in order to uh, save somebody else's life um, uh, it's quoted for shame Rabbi Yashiv although one always has to be quite careful of things which are quoted for shame Rabbi Yashiv that he felt that risk was much too high um, and he uh, he put the risk at between 5 and 10%. And it's interesting that there, in the case of the army, there we're not talking about necessarily people who are going, doing that to save lives. There you're talking about soldiers who are going to be professional soldiers. And 
even for panosa, that suggest that that Imratia is suggesting that a person could take a one in six risk even even for Panosa. And Rabbi Yashav says that perhaps the risk for, for when you're saving life could be up to a five percent risk, whereas uh, up to up to a ten percent risk and if it's for Panosa maybe up to a five percent risk. All of these things are a bit bit vague. Um, but what they're saying is that um, that there are certain risks which are acceptable to take and you have to weigh up the cases of, of what, what risk it is. We'll come back to that um, question of what risk you can take for Panossa a bit later on. So the, the, the question of risk really, I think perhaps the way Rosh Hashem puts it is perhaps the easiest way of understanding that. And Rosh Hashem says that um, that when you look at these things, you really have to look at it. He's actually talking about even Kilo Shabbos for Sakonis and Foshis on, on Shabbos, is that you have to look at what is considered a Sakonis. He says, it's He says, there's no real Makur for this, and it's a great sophic for me. What should you consider to be a degree of risk? And in Misadas Fara, nearly fans as he shall derek rave bene odom livrev mizer, kabarev me of Sakona, hari choshev kasophic pikoch nefesh. We don't look at statistics, we can't taste this. Is number one, the statistics are very often not clear, uh, and number two, there's no real makur to say that in general we go statistically. The way the halacha looks at it is what would normal people do? A bit like the, the discussion uh, which the Rav had in Shabbat Shuvah about showing some Hashem, that we look at what is the normal norms of society, what would a normal person do, a normal balanced person do in this kind of situation, and the halacha is determined by what is the normal thing for people to do. If it's a normal thing that a normal average man on the Clapham omnibus would take that risk, then that's the, that's the determination of, of, of the halacha, of the risk that one's supposed to take or the risk that one's, one's um, allowed to take in those, in those situations. So when it comes to taking risks in order to treat patients, um, and obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, this was a huge uh, um, issue for the uh, Hatsola and for the doctors. How much risk should we take, put ourselves in, in order to treat patients? And on a personal note, it was, in a way, I was fortunate that I came down with it very, very early on, a few days after Purim. So I was working from home for a couple of weeks, and after that I felt much more confident to, to go back to work. Um, but for others, um, and obviously now as antibodies wane, so the dilemma becomes much more um, worrisome in my mind again um, with the increase in numbers and the increasing number of sick people. Um, but the question was then, how much risk would a Hatsala person, is a Hatsala person allowed to say that he's prepared to go to cases even where they've clearly, which have clearly got COVID? Is he mechuyiv to do that? Could he withdraw and say, I don't want to be involved in Hatsala till this is, till this is blown over? Can a doctor say he doesn't want to see any patients face to face if they've got, if there's a question that they've got in? And we were right from the beginning triaging patients and trying not to let anybody come to the surgery if they had any fever uh, to try and reduce the risks. Uh, we didn't know how well the very poor PPE 
uh, a PPE that the uh, NHS provided, how much protection that would, would be, and it's later become clear that the PPE which is provided in intensive care units where you're completely in, in gans up and completely covered actually provides very good protection. But the, all the other stuff with a few aprons and masks, etc., the protection is, is quite limited. Um, and how much are you to do and how much can you, how often can you, what rights have you got to withdraw from being involved in that kind of, uh, in that, that kind of uh, enterprise? And perhaps should really take this opportunity to, to uh, acknowledge the amazing serious efforts of, of Hatsala that they, uh, from the beginning, they just took this on board and they, uh, uh, and they were prepared to do whatever was necessary to monitor people when, when they need to go into hospital and then relate to us remotely the exact situation of the patient. could very often advise the patients without having actually seen them face-to-face um, as a result of their... Uh, so even though we tried to be careful right from the beginning, in fact, uh, just on uh, three days after Purim, the patient came to the surgery. He was absolutely insistent, no temperature, he's got no symptoms, he's got a bit of back pain. But, of course, once I saw him, he actually had a, had a, a fever. Uh, turns out he was COVID positive, and that's probably where I caught it from within a... I, had temperature three, two or three days later uh, and unfortunately that patient was nifter within a week of my seeing him so that's the way it was when we were just so totally overwhelmed at the beginning so the Tzitzeliezer has actually got a long chuva where he goes through the, the question of the responsibilities particularly of doctors um, in, in a situation of a magaifa, I'm sure he never envisaged any kind of magaifa like we've got now, but he talks about what responsibility does a doctor have to treat patients with infectious diseases. And he brings first the Chavasaramar, which is very commonly quoted. And Chavasaramar says that somebody asked him that they rented out their house, they'd agreed to rent out their house, they'd signed a contract, and then the person who was supposed to come into the house said he doesn't want to come because his wife's got an infectious disease and he's worried about spreading the infectious disease. And, uh, and the Ramar says, you don't have to worry about um, diseases spreading. That's not an excuse not to come. It's just trying to make an excuse. In general, there's no concern about a uh, thing. He said, if you said that, then there'd be no mitzvah bikachonim. Why don't you find in Chazal that there's no mitzvah bikachonim to visit somebody who's got an infectious disease? You don't find anywhere there's a distinction of people with an infectious disease or without an infectious disease. So therefore... The, we don't suspend normal halacha dependent on somebody who's got an infectious disease and there's a mitzvah of bikacholin even to visit somebody with, with an infectious disease. Uh, and based on that, the, um, the uh, uh, Knesset Dola brings that mitzvah bikacholin ain lachalit ben choli hamagefa lacholim acherim. For mitzvah bikacholin there's no difference between a cholim, a magefa, or any other cholim, zulus bali rosan, there's some condition of bali rosan, which is an exception, um, but that's why the, and when the Ramah says that you've got a mitzvah bika cholim, it doesn't make any difference between stam cholim, davek, whether it's a, an, any normal infectious disease, or to, whether it's a magefa, or ifushavir, we don't find any of those criteria. But the, um, the Tzitzilis says he finds that very difficult and he brings from Rukhaim Falaji um, who says uh, who argues very strongly against the uh, Ramah and the Knesset Sagadola um, he says that if the Ramah would have seen the Divrei Roshonim he never would have said such a thing um, doesn't 
say which Roshonim is quoting, but he says that it's inconceivable that the Ramah could say something else. Where do you find that you're mukhuyiv to risk your life in the midst of Bikacholim? It can't be, it can't be like that. And so the Sisinez explains very uh, logically that clearly they're talking about two separate situations. You've got a situation of somebody who's got a normal kind uh, of infection. In fact, interestingly, he even mentions that jaundice, which is rarely uh, infectious just by being in the same room with somebody. That's what the, what the Ramah is talking about. It could be even somebody who's got a chest infection. You go in, you're very unlikely to pick up something just by being in the room with them. Even somebody with the flu, if you keep a distance, very unlikely to pick it up. That's totally different from a magaifa, like the common discussions of magaifas of cholera and stuff like that, which they had. Um, and certainly totally different from the kind of magaifa which he was talking about, and certainly the kind of magaifa which we're talking about now, where we know that it's exceedingly uh, infectious for anybody, anybody in any kind of contact, and we know that that's uh, potentially fatal. In such a case, Cecilia says, even the Ramah would agree it's not conceivable that there should be any chiv b'kocholim in that uh, situation, and there's no, and therefore no chiv in order to uh, to um, put yourself into any danger in order to be kind. Um, <coughs> particularly here, he's talking about mitzvahs b'kocholim. <laughs> where you know you've got this circulating in the in the uh, in the air that the air is contaminated. Everybody would agree. So the question is: Is that any different from the situation for somebody who's just going to be masaking uh, who's obviously not allowed to be masaking himself, uh, put himself in sakana for that? What's the situation then of a doctor or a medical professional who's involved in that? So he says a doctor is in a different situation, and he gives a number of explanations for it. One of them is quite outstanding, really, but he says that he wants to answer Tosu's kash. Tosu says, we know the heter to treat somebody is because of the possible of a rapper, your rapper. Says uh, Tosu asks, why do you need a double lotion? It would be enough just to save a rapper. Why save a rapper, your rapper? So Eliezer says he could answer Tosos Kasha that Verapu means you've got a chiv to heal somebody. Verapu Yerapu means you're even mechiv to put yourself into a degree of sakana in order to 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 um, to heal them. Um, so besides that, there's a number a number of other considerations, and he then comes on to Ashail of what degree of risk are you allowed to do in order to in order even where there's not case of sakana, for example. For Panossa, there's a famous notary Huda, who somebody who was a professional hunter in his estate, um, and that was necessary for his Panossa. And the notary Huda says that a person is allowed to put himself into a degree of skana in order to pure his Panossa of hunting. The Gemara talks about um, uh, the Achiev. Uh, of where the chiv to pay workers applies, and the Mara says somebody, uh, he's risked his life by climbing up the trees and doing your work for you, and then you don't pay him. In other words, you see that there's a degree of risk in what these poilim were doing, but nevertheless, that was their panasa. Even crossing oceans on business in those days was dangerous, but nevertheless, in order for panasa, you're allowed to take a certain degree of risk. So therefore, Besides the question of, of Hatsonus and Foshas here, what degree of risk are you supposed to do for Hatsonus and Foshas, there's also the fact that this is the doctor's profession. He's pursuing his profession. He's allowed to take a certain degree of risk in order to pursue his profession. 
Um, and therefore, since he's got a chiv, as a doctor, he's got a chiv to heal, and he's allowed to do it because he's, uh, because, because it's his profession, so therefore he's got a chiv to do it because he can't say it's too dangerous because, uh, somebody similar in a similar professional situation might be prepared to take such risks, therefore he can't use that as a, as a reason not to do it, and therefore he's got a chiv in order to do it, just like he would have a chiv to treat, uh, any, any other patient. <laughs> Right. So I think we'll come on to it in a second. I think we'll we'll talk about the general thing in a second. That's a, another point which he makes. I think you mean. Another point which he makes is he says well, that a doctor healing is considered gidrish al-olam. Every town needs to have doctors, needs to have hospitals, needs to have professionals. That's part of the way that society survives. Therefore, if suddenly when there's an epidemic, doctors withdraw and say, we can't treat patients, it's too dangerous, then the whole fabric of society uh, breaks down as a result of that. Um, he calls them in And therefore, it's necessary for doctors to override certain risks in order to be able to maintain the, uh, in order to maintain the fabric of society and the fabric of, uh, of medical treatment. Just like an army goes to war, uh, even if it's putting soldiers at risk, even when it's not in the chemist mitzvah. So similarly here, you have to maintain, uh, there's a key to maintain society. And therefore, uh, and therefore you've got, uh, and therefore society can be mechai of the doctors to continue working, even if there's a degree of risk to themselves, because that's necessary for the, for the maintenance for the Yeshua Shalona. Just like, uh, we'll that maybe later on. Yeah. So the, and he also brings interesting, also from Mechai of Halaji in, in Sefer Nishmas Kolchai, they asked the Shai at time of an epidemic, whether a doctor, the shul, did not want to allow the doctor to come into shul because they were worried that he might be carrying the contagion and he might pass it on to other people in shul and so they wanted to exclude the doctor from coming into shul and they had a whole uh, halakhic discussion about it and they said that they would have a right to ask him not to, uh, not to come to shul in order to avoid risk themselves but he says nobody there suggests that the doctor shouldn't be treating the patients in order that he should go to shul. Clearly the doctor's got the key to treat the patients and if they are concerned then about the risk then, then it's, uh, um, they, can, they can exclude him. Um, and Chaim himself said that doctors were mechuyed to treat patients during the cholera epidemic. That's quoted in Chaim. So it seems clear that for these various reasons, um, it's definitely mutter for a reifer to be mesakin himself to be metapal b'cholem. And the chori could even have a, a chiv to do it um, in these certain situations. The difference, perhaps, with this from other, other previous situations is that the risk of this disease is much greater the older you are and if you've got other medical conditions. And therefore, if the medical um, establishment, the whole establishment can continue by using younger people who are at less risk from the infection, if Hatzala can survive by letting the younger members take all the calls, then Lachore would be logical that since none of these uh, things would apply, none of these uh, objections would apply, and it would be reasonable for older or more vulnerable people to withdraw themselves from the front line and let those uh, and, and work uh, remotely and let those uh, younger people who are at lower risk um, uh, take on the, the face-to-face uh, the face-to-face work. And similarly, the Hebrew I think, works on the same sort of principles. You need to keep the Hebrew going, but if it can be done by people who are at lower risk, 
then that would seem to be a, a, a logical conclusion. Which that brings us to the question of whether there is sort of any light at the end of this dark tunnel which we find ourselves embroiled in. And that, of course, is the question of the vaccination. And we can look at it from the point of view of the risk we've discussed, and we can look at it from the point of view of vaccination in general. It's really uh, the same question as has been going on for years between the, for those uh, who are in favour of vaccination, anti-vaxxers who say you shouldn't um, force people or encourage, even necessarily encourage people to have vaccinations. Um, and this is really just an expansion of that whole previous discussion. It's not really really a new question, but obviously it comes very strongly to the fore in, in this situation. So just as we've talked about what risk you have to put yourself at in order to save other people, you have to consider what risk should you put yourself at in order to save yourself. It's really just a development of the same question. Instead of here, we're not talking about the risk that you're doing in order to save somebody else. We're talking about the risk that you're, you, you might be taking now in order to save yourself from a greater risk later on. And so let's assume for the purpose of the discussion that there was some unknown risk. In other words, the main reason why people say you shouldn't take the vaccination is because maybe it's risky. It's been put forward much too quickly. It's, it's come through. Normally vaccinations take 10 years. Drugs take 10 years to develop and it's all been pushed through in a few months. And because of the seriousness of the situation, governments politically have pushed it through and it's all big pharma and governments all in a great conspiracy in order to try and catch as many of us unawares as possible. And the main argument is that since it's come through so quickly, we don't know if there are any potential risks. And when this vaccine was first uh, introduced here, there had been about 40,000 people had been given the vaccine without any serious uh, complications. But we said 40,000 is not that much. Maybe it kills one in, in 100,000. Um, now we've had you know, at least 400,000 doses given here and many, many millions around the world, so we can be more confident that there's no immediate risk, that the risk of dying from it, from anaphylaxis or anything else, is exceedingly small. But then they say maybe there's long-term risk. We don't know since it's only a few months old. How do we know? And people put out all kinds of theoretical stuff about why it might cause infertility and all other kinds of uh, stuff which got almost no, no um, uh, biological basis to it. But let's say that there are some risks which we're not aware of. Would you be allowed to take it if there were some risks, or would you be mechuyiv to take it if there were, were some risks? And we should be aware that, that in halacha, prevention of illness takes an equal place to, to, to treatment of illness. It's halacha and shukun aruch that a person, I mean, it's a halacha and it's a pos in the Torah, they have to build a marker around your uh, around your roof to stop somebody from falling off and the Shukunar brings you have to try and uh, prevent any kind of mitzvah that could come you've got a chiv to do it to, to try and prevent yourself from it and somebody who doesn't do it um, is, is considered as uh, uh, as uh, so what level of risk are you supposed to take in order to, to reduce risk? What kind of risks are considered as being significant risks? And the number which is 
comes up, crops up in the in the truth from very different places, is a number one in a thousand. I don't think it means exactly one in a thousand. You can never measure so much. But it, what it means to say is, if it's a one in a thousand risk, then you don't have to consider it. There's a truth of uh, uh, Rupert Vega where he's talking about a certain catechological uh, situation. And he says the risk of it is achas uh, It's only a one in a thousand risk that should happen from that. So you don't have to to consider it. Um, the Morgan of Rome in, in Shintesayin also brings out about whether you're allowed to kill a, um, an insect which might cause, uh, which might be dangerous um, on, on, Sh- on Shabbos. And he says, um, it's a milsadar shichihu, this certain kind of insect. It's very, very rare to cause any problem. You cover over the food to prevent it. It's only one in a thousand risks that it might cause some damage, that's not a reason to the you don't have to, to worry about that. So the Tferes Yisrael, in Yuma, where it talks there about Chai Yishar, the, that there's no, uh, uh, that you're allowed to, um, for Chai you can dig and fuck in a Sagal, even if somebody's buried under it, even if they're not going to survive that long anyway. Um, so he says from then, it's not clear how he sees it from the Mishnah, but he makes it very clear, says, and therefore, inoculation shall pocket, the smallpox, um, inoculation. Even though, at that time, it was reported a one in a thousand risk that people would die directly from the vaccine, one in a thousand people would die from the vaccine. Nevertheless, that's much less than the risk of getting smallpox and of dying if you get smallpox. And since that sakana is much greater, therefore a person has to put himself into a sakana rochaika in order to save sakana le- in, in, in Ovis. He calls him a chosid jenna. The Edward Jenner who discovered the smallpox vaccine is considered one of the chasid Olam because he saved so many, so many millions uh, of lives as a result of his vaccination. And that is put, brought uh, in halacha by many of the major poskim. The Zivchei Tzedek brings it, the Kafachaim uh, brings it, uh, the was the Rebbe, the Kafachaim, um, that even if there's a, a mortality rate of one in a thousand, you're mechuyiv to take it because of, uh, in order to protect yourself later on. And the Shemzaman again explains that this is the same principle as you mentioned before, of following societal norms. That if the normal thing is that a vaccine is, is, is established as being a normal, pro, normal part of the process which governments have, have, um, have established, and that becomes normal practice, then that becomes a part of what a key of a person has to do. And therefore that applies to the childhood vaccines, that, that the risks are far, far less than one, one in a thousand. So that's what he's saying, you don't have to be cautious for that, or you can't, you mustn't be cautious for that, because it's understood that it's being, the, the government's interest is, in the bottom line, the government's interest is, is to save lives. Um, and, and all the posts can follow that, but these conspiracy theories really, really are not, uh, don't, don't hold um, any weight. Um, and he brings this halacha of kofin b'nei ha'ir in, that you can be kofa everybody to contribute, let's say, to building the wall around it. You can be kofa everybody to contribute to the army which is needed to protect uh, pr- protect a country. So therefore, in order to to, says this and other poskim say this, you could even not 
besides the, the fact that they all say one should take this vaccine because it will likely protect you, there's a good chance that it will protect you from illness later on, but one, the government can even enforce that everybody should take it in order to get the levels of immunity up to herd in, that there should be enough herd immunity in order to protect everybody else, that a conscientious objector hasn't really got any, any right to prevent it. And Rabbi Yashu Passman, that's the, the, the Gabba childhood vaccines that somebody says now that almost everybody is vaccinated, we hope. Um, so therefore, if I don't vaccinate my child, I'm not really causing any risk because if there's no circulating um, illness at the moment, so why should I do it? The risk of whooping cough now is extremely low, so therefore let, why should I put my child through any discomfort or even the slightest risk in order to pray? But of course, as we know, that, that becomes a slippery slope, and with, in a very short time you get measles, uh, measles outbreaks because you want to allow people to do it, and therefore each person has got an achrayas for the cloud in order to do it, and that lachoru could certainly apply this vaccine as well, not only because of the risk to the individual, to, to the society that, that how many people will get ill because of this, but I think also because of getting society back to normal. There's a limit to how long a, a, a society can survive with a succession of lockdowns and lurching from one lockdown to the next and, and inability to live normal social life, inability to meet with your family, inability to, to have proper simchas and proper tefillas and all of these things which, which, which are part of the fabric of society which are, are, which are, uh, which just seems to stretch on and on and on. If the vaccine is able to protect that, there's a chiyav on everybody who as they offered it to do it in order to try and allow ourselves to get our lives back to some, to some uh, uh, form of normality. Um, and that's the, 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 the Rosh Hashanah says, there's a, a Morgan of Rome which says that um, at a time when there was um, smallpox was going around and many children were dying. So he says, um, he brings from the Shlah that, Kol echod you've got a chiv to take your children out of the city in that situation. And somebody who doesn't take a city out of the city, it's chayev v'nafshotim. If they succumb to the, uh, to the smallpox, then the parents who didn't take them out of the city are chayev, are, are responsible for their lives. Even though presumably moving yourself out of the city was a huge upheaval, what happens to your panos or what happens to everything else, but you've got a chiv to do it in order to save lives. He says, the vaccine is our equivalent to moving out of the city. That we have to put us, be prepared to put ourselves to some discomfort. We have to be prepared even to take certain risks in order to be able to preserve our lives and in order to be able to preserve the lives of think. We hope that the vaccine will be effective against new strains and we don't know how. But this is all assuming that the vaccine continues to be effective as things stand at the moment. There certainly is the hope that it will enable us to look towards the end of this uh, this epidemic. And the other situation is, which I just mentioned, which someone also mentions, is that we talk about that any time when you're taking risks to save somebody, um, and the whole discussion in nobody hood has got about autopsies, that by doing an autopsy you might save somebody else's life because you'll find out some medical information, that's not a reason to do bimachai of anything because the chol is not in front of you. Rishonazam says that din of chodah lefonenu doesn't mean you actually have to have an ill person in front of you. So it doesn't mean that you can't take any risk until you're actually ill yourself. What it means is that the the fact that the illness is there 
that the illness is circulating, that this illness is around, that's enough to be considered as a Chayla Lefonenu. And therefore all these three, we have to look at ourselves as if, imagine as if we were already ill, we'd certainly be prepared to take a risk of one in a thousand to have some, some treatment which would help us. So therefore you have to look at it at that situation as if the Chayla Lefonenu is, is already there. And if he says you can even... Uh, enforce people to take experimental drugs as a, if there's a chance that it, that it could help them. That's a whole other uh, discussion. But I'm sure that based on this is the reason for the Haskama of the Gedolim that, that uh, I think stand at the moment. Everybody should take the opportunity to take the vaccine uh, as soon as is possible. And just two more minutes maybe just to say a quick uh, idea on the Pasha just to finish off with. Um, and that is uh, sort of a foreman um, discusses just a, a quick ha'ara which is very striking once you see it and that is he asks Rashi at the beginning of the Sedra um, Yosef agrees that he'll take Yaakov back to Mitzrayim and he says um, uh, but Yaakov makes him make a shvur he's shovely why does Yaakov have to make him make a shvur he's already agreed to do it he's an honest person no reason to see he's not trustworthy. What is it that's going to, that, that he feels the requirement that he has to make a shvur? And Ruffan talks about it. Ruffan says it would help him in his uh, arguments with Paro. But, but what's even more difficult is that Rashi says then, Yaakov, uh, when Yaakov hears that, he bows down and Rashi says, because, um, because, um, he was so happy that, that he saw that Yosef was only a Pitsitko that he, was, he, he gave thanks to Hagodesh that Yosef was a Why now? He should have done that 17 years earlier. He came back, Yosef had been all these years in Mitzrayim in the house of Potiphar in prison in Paris Palace and he was only a Pitsitko. The last 17 years, if anything had been easier, at least he had the family support to do it. What is it that now suddenly Yaakov sees that makes him say, oh, this is Baruch Hashem, Yosef is only Pitsitko. And so he points out there's a bit of a, a tension in a way in last week's Pasha. And that is when, when Yaakov comes down to Mitzrayim, he's very, very careful to stress the, the brothers say, we've only come to sojourn here, the place we belong is Eretz Canaan. Yaakov was upset, he thought that he was going to be, because Yaakov Vashava, he thought he was going to come and settle in Eretz Canaan, be able to stay there and start the settlement of, of Yisrael in Eretz Canaan. Now they had to come down to Mitzrayim, but it was clear that that had to be a completely temporary, uh, temporary arrangement. Nevertheless, it says, Yosef, um, Yosef gave him a strongholding in, in Eretz Mitzrayim. In other words, Yosef saw he was a part of the landed gentry in Mitzrayim, and he saw that there was, at least for the moment, Claudius who in Mitzrayim, he wanted to make them feel at home there. He wanted to, for the sake of his, his, his father and his brothers, he wanted to make them feel at home, and he wanted to make them feel comfortable where they were. And the last posseg of last week's etc., which runs directly into the etc., is that Vayeshev Yisra Beret Mitzrayim Beret Goshen Chazuva. They took a strong holding there. They were there. They were settled there. They, it was it was it was much strong, and that was what was bothering Yaakov. Yaakov said, "We came here Lagur in this land, not there." And therefore, he insisted, "You have to take me back to Eretz Canaan to be buried." It's not just a question of it's a nice place to be buried. It's a question of 
demonstrating to Klan Yisrael that Eretz Canaan is the place where we belong. We don't, we, whatever degree you're settled here, you have to recognize that we belong in Eretz Canaan and we have to go back to Eretz Canaan. And that put Yosef in a very difficult position because he has to now go and argue, Paro, these people who have come and settled and become so much part of the family society, Yaakov was looked up to as a, as a patriarch in Mitzrayim, we don't really belong here. We really belong in, we really belong back in Eretz Canaan. He says, imagine the queen died and you decided you're going to bury her in Madagascar. There would be an, an outcry. So the, the idea that he has to now go to power and tell him, thank you very much, it's very good all the Hachnasa have given us, but we don't belong here, that was a huge challenge, a huge nisoyance for, for Yosef HaTzadik. And when Yosef, and that's why it needed to be strengthened by a shvur, and when Yosef HaTzadik was prepared to be sh- make a shvur that he would do that, that's what made Yaakov realize that Yosef was only the tzidko, that when it pushed, came to Shav, he felt he still belonged with his family in Eretz Canaan and not as part of the aristocracy of, of Eretz Mitzrayim. So I was just thinking that perhaps in connection with what we discussed, obviously, who knows what the Cheshman, like Cheshman is behind these terrible times we've been through. But perhaps a lesson that we can learn from it is perhaps the lesson of Yachazufa. Perhaps we become just a bit bit too comfortable. We've got our houses are just a bit too fancy and we feel we need just a bit too much comfort there. And the says, you want all this comfort so you get stuck in your house and we'll, we'll, we'll confine you to your house, we'll isolate you in all this comfort. It's true, it's nice to be isolated in a comfortable house and in a, in a, in a dingy flat but nevertheless perhaps that's a lesson that we've learned that perhaps we have to remind ourselves whatever happens, however comfortable we are, we're still in God as a can demonstrate to that, that with a flick of a finger, which we can demonstrate how much God is there in order that we can perhaps strengthen ourselves and uh, strengthen our tefillahs, strengthen our ishtadlahs uh, in order to try and reach an end of this uh, terrible situation and then perhaps we'll all be zoicha to be as God said it from here of you, may not me.